you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 7 this morning. The Marines used to advertise for recruitment with the phrase, we're looking for a few good men. Now, based on politics and so many other things, I don't think they would be allowed to use that phrase. Nevertheless, it's very much the way people often think about God and the church. God is looking for good people to be a part of His church and His kingdom. However, from the Bible as a whole, and specifically from the passage that we have before us this morning, what we see is that God's not looking for good people. What He is looking for are people of humility and faith. He's looking for faith. He's looking for people that will believe in Him, specifically people that will believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. The question that Luke is wanting to answer this morning, though, is this. Why should we put our faith in Jesus? What is it about Him that gives us confidence to trust Him to be the Savior that He claims to be? That's the question that Luke is answering in this chapter, and that's the question that we want to answer for ourselves this morning. Why is it that Jesus is worthy of our faith? I encourage you to follow along as I begin reading in chapter 7, verse 1. After Jesus had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, Not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of God. May he bless its reading this morning. All through this chapter, Luke is answering the question, who is Jesus? And in these verses, he shows us that Jesus is the one worthy of our faith. He is the one who is worthy of our confidence and our trust. And that's what we want to see this morning. Essentially, uh, Luke presents a a kind of multifaceted picture. He says, Jesus is this, and he's this, and he's this, and he's this. And for all of these reasons, we can have confidence in him. We can put our faith in him and trust that he will be the savior that we need. 
So here's what we want to see. All of these things that Luke presents to us. First, we see that we can have faith in Jesus. He is worthy of our confidence and trust because Jesus hears our prayers. Jesus hears our prayers. What is prayer? We actually answered that question in our Sunday school class this morning. And we answered it a couple of ways. We had a nice, succinct uh, answer from the catechism that we're looking at. But one of the, the first things that was said is prayer is talking to God. And at its simplest, that's exactly what prayer is. For us, that means casting our gaze, or at the very least, our mind's eye, our, our soul towards heaven, and asking for help from the living God. But for the people in this passage... It simply meant walking up, standing face to face with God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, and conveying their need, offering their petitions and their requests to him. Notice that here it was a Roman centurion who first came to Jesus for help. Again, Luke says that a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. The centurion had heard about Jesus and he hears that he's in town and now he's seeking his help. How did he hear about him? Well, we don't know how he heard about Jesus. Uh, We have a guess though, based on a clue given in his location. Notice again in verse 1 that Jesus says, rather that Luke tells us, Jesus had entered the city of Capernaum. Now do you remember what we saw earlier back in chapter 4 when Jesus was beginning his ministry? He comes to his hometown and has his high expectations and he says, I'm sure that you've heard about all that I did instead of Capernaum and you're expecting the same thing here. So all we're given is this glimpse that he did something amazing in Capernaum. And that the people loved him there. And what John tells us in his gospel is more specific. That there was in fact a Gentile official there whose son was ill. Jesus, at the request of this man, healed the boy without ever even going to the house. He simply said, go home, your son is well. Your son will recover. We see that in John chapter 4. Now here's the reality. Both of these men are Gentiles, civil servants living in Capernaum. I don't think, we don't know for sure, but I don't think it's any stretch of the imagination to believe that this, this official had talked to this centurion and told him, let me tell you about this man Jesus. Who though a great distance away, though across town, simply uttered a word and my son was healed. Now again, we don't know that that's how the centurion heard about him, but if we are seeking to piece the Bible together, that that makes sense. It's plausible that that could have happened. Regardless, though, having heard about Jesus in whatever way he heard, the centurion is now seeking Jesus' help. He's making his petition through these elders, his mediators, that his beloved servant might be healed, and he believes that Jesus can do it. Notice those who come on behalf of the centurion are also petitioning Jesus. They're not just conveying the centurion's request, but when they come, they also plead with him earnestly saying, he is worthy, this man who's made this request, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So, so they're, they're not just conveying the request, but they themselves are also requesting, Jesus, please answer this man's request. He, he has loved us so much. He has been kind to us, to God's covenant people. He has provided the funds that a synagogue might be built here in Capernaum. Now, again, we don't know a lot about the centurion. Perhaps like Cornelius from Acts chapter 10, he was a God-fearer, a Gentile who recognized and worshipped the God of Israel as the one true God who had renounced false idols and, and was essentially trying to live as a Jew without actually becoming a Jew through circumcision. We don't know. 
But what we do know is that the reputation, even among the elders of the Jews in this city, is that this man is honorable. He loves God and his people, and they've come to petition him to answer the request of the help. Jesus hears these requests, and what does he do? Verse 6, Jesus went with them. Very simply, Jesus hears their prayer, and he answers them. Now, we said that this passage is about Jesus being worthy of our faith. So the question is, what does prayer have to do with faith? Well, I think that Calvin was right when he said prayer is the chief exercise of faith. Think about that sentence. Prayer is the chief exercise of faith. What does that mean? That mean that that means to the degree to which you pray with confidence before God, you have faith in God. To the degree that you are before Him in prayer, on your knees, hands stretched out, eyes closed, eyes open, whatever it is, but to the degree that you are a praying person, you are also a faith-filled person. If you don't believe that God is trustworthy, if you don't believe He's going to hear you, if you don't believe He's going to answer you, then why would you pray? But if you believe God has made promises to His people, if you believe He is your heavenly Father who loves to give good gifts to His children, if you believe that He is all-powerful and the God who hears and answers prayer, then you would be before Him at every turn and every opportunity displaying your faith in Him. And now, I imagine all of us would probably say, we don't pray enough. And part of the means of encouraging you towards that is to show you Jesus... Jesus is a king who loves to hear and answer prayer. Even when we're asking for things that, that we don't need, that we don't deserve, Jesus does not turn a deaf ear. He doesn't say, I don't want to hear that. I, I don't want to hear that. In fact, he's given us a spirit to help us pray rightly. A Holy Spirit who, who kind of divinely edits the prayers, Paul says in Romans 8. So sometimes when we're, we don't even know what to pray for. The Spirit knows our heart and He knows God's heart and therefore He crafts and shapes and intercedes for us. We can have faith in Jesus. We can have confidence in Him. We can trust Him because, Luke says, He is a man who hears our prayers. The second reason to have faith in Jesus from these verses is that Jesus reigns with authority. Jesus reigns with authority. A centurion was, if you don't know, an officer in the Roman army who commanded up to 100 soldiers. Uh, usually it was closer to 60 to 80 soldiers, but um, century, centurion, 100, you, you, you kind of get the point of where that's going there. Ancient sources tell us that such men were required to be a cut above the rest. It couldn't just be uh, the dopey guy who's looking for a part-time job and they say, sure, you be the centurion. That, 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 that's not who gets that job. They had to be at least 30 years old. They had to be literate with letters of recommendation and a few years of active military service. That means frontline combat. The ancient writer Vesetius says this, The centurion in the infantry is chosen for his size, strength, and dexterity in throwing his missile weapons and for his skill in the use of his sword and shield. In short, for his expertness in all the exercises. He is to be vigilant temperate, active, and readier to execute the orders he receives than to talk. Strict in exercising and keeping up proper discipline among his soldiers and obliging them to appear clean and well-dressed and to have their arms constantly rubbed and bright. Now, I understand everything except for that last thing. I don't know what the rubbing and the brightness is, but everything else presents a picture of the centurion that is a man of war. 
He is experienced. He is disciplined. He knows how to get the job done. I love that that line that this ancient historian gives that says he is active and readier to execute orders he receives than to talk. In other words, not just like, well, I think we got to make a plan. It's like, no, this is the order. Let's go. We're going to get it done. In other words, this was a man who was not only under authority, who knew how to take orders that was given to him, but he was also a man of authority, giving orders, sending and receiving, uh, commanding men into battle and into harm's way. All of this is important for us to understand the mindset of this man. When he again first sends these friends to be mediators for him with Jesus. And then word comes back, Jesus has heard your request. He has heard from the elders and now he's coming to your house. And then he begins to have second thoughts. He says in verse 6, Luke says, When Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent to friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Why does the centurion feel unworthy to have Jesus in his house? Why did he feel unworthy to go face to face and offer the request? Someone said it's because he's an unclean Gentile. He knows Jesus is a Jew. Maybe it was because he knew the depth of his sinfulness. The reality is we don't know. And the text doesn't give us enough to, to say clearly. And that's okay because that's not the point that Luke's making anyway. The point is not so much his unworthiness and the reason for it. It's the man's humility before Jesus. He understands that Jesus is a man with authority. A greater authority than what he has. An authority that can be trusted with requests. Again, he knows all about authority. And he looks at this man, Jesus, and he says, I'm not worthy to have you be at my house, and you don't need to be at my house. Such is your authority that all you have to do is speak a word and the illness will be gone. And again, I'm forced to ask, is it, is it the official from John 4? Where Jesus has said, I don't have to go to your house, just go home, he's going to get better. And the son gets better. Is this the story? Is this how he knows? And again, doesn't matter. All that matters is he knows. He knows that Jesus has this kind of authority and he believes in him. He sees Jesus as a sovereign Lord who can command fevers and illnesses just like he commands soldiers. Jesus reigns with authority. But think of the other scene, the scene with the widow's son. This is even more amazing. It's not long after, Luke tells us, it's not long, maybe the same day, that he heals the centurion's servant in Capernaum, that Jesus and his disciples go to the town of Nain. They're on their way into town, and they see a funeral procession. Verse 12. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord said to her, he had compassion, saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, don't let the power of this, this account escape you, either because it's too familiar or because it's too remote. We know that not only God throughout the Bible, but Jesus specifically did many, many miracles. In fact, John says that there wouldn't be enough books in the world to record all that Jesus said and did. 
Nevertheless, it's only a handful of times that God ever raises anyone from the dead in the scriptures. And when we're talking about dead, about bringing someone back to life, we're not talking about what goes on in an ER every day, in the hospital. We're not talking about someone who is mostly dead, in the words of the princess bride. Someone who has no pulse or respirations, but can still be revived. This is the kind of dead where they've done the CPR, they use the defibrillators, and nothing works. There is a body bag headed to the morgue, and the funeral is being called. It's that kind of dead that we're talking about here. But Jesus looks at the son, laid on this bear, and he says, no problem. And the son is given life again. It's absolutely amazing. And both of these stories, both of these stories, both the request and confidence of the centurion and then the display of power and authority in Jesus forces us to ask this question of ourselves. And it's simply this, how big is the Jesus you believe in? How big is the Jesus that you believe in? Just this week, we were teaching kids to sing and to give thanks to Jesus as the God of gods and the Lord of lords who alone does great wonders. Is that your Jesus? Is that the Jesus that you worship and and believe? Is he a big Jesus who stands with sovereign authority over all things? Or is he the Jesus of film and television who is loving and kind and can do some kind of impressive magic tricks but is largely impotent in the daily circumstances of your life. Some people believe in that kind of Jesus. They think he's good to get me into heaven, but that's about it. He can't help with my marriage. He can't help me raise my children. He can't help me with my addiction. He can't help me with my troubles. That's not the Jesus of the Bible, friends. That's not the Jesus as displayed here. Jesus is the one who reigns over all things. He simply speaks a word. And a life-threatening sickness evaporates. Death itself is reversed as cells that are already decaying, that are already, already falling apart as mitochondrial power is gone, suddenly are reinvigorated. Lifeless blood is oxygenated. The neurons of the brain begin firing again. That's authority. That's authority. And you can be sure you can be sure that that authority extends to every part of your life as well. Some of you feel like you have an authority in your life. Some of you have a sin that you can't seem to get rid of. It, 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 it is like, a, it's like a, a heavy burden on your back that weighs you down every day as you give in again and again and again to this sin. It feels like an authority in your life that you cannot conquer and get out from under. Some of you have a fear that is so overwhelming it cripples you in your life and you cannot overcome of it. Some of you have a situation of which you have no control over, but it seems to have control over you. You worry about it, you grieve over it, but nothing changes. You're miserable. But loved ones, Jesus has authority over all of those things. Jesus has authority in part of his sovereign reign as the King of kings and the God of gods. If he can bring back to life someone who has died, then he surely has the power to take care of these problems in your life. This is why he is worthy of our faith. He hears our prayers, but more than that, he has the authority to act. He has the authority to bring about change. He is sovereign and more than capable of stepping in and helping meet our needs. Jesus hears our prayer. Jesus reigns with authority. And third, Luke shows us that Jesus sees with compassion. Jesus sees with compassion. Think about how Jesus interacts with the people here. The centurion was a a soldier. 
you know, one of the things that kind of frustrated me when uh, not Desert Storm, the first Gulf War, but when the second Gulf War broke out, was uh, you heard on the news lots of guys that and gals that had used the military for their college education expect it to make up their time with four years and then be done and never look back. And suddenly they're being called up to go to war. And they're complaining, saying, well, I didn't enlist expecting this. And I want to say, it's the military. What did you think was going to happen? You're going to, you're going to set up flower beds in the White House lawn? I mean, come on. I mean, this is, this, you're being trained for war. If they send you into war, that's, that's what's why you're there. Likewise with the centurion. His life was revolved around death about conflict, about either protecting the peace or actively going against armies and battles. Death was, this is the first century, death was an everyday reality. There probably wasn't just one funeral on any given day coming out of a city. Jesus could have easily said, that's life. I I can't heal everybody else. Because he doesn't heal everybody today. He didn't back then, he doesn't today. Sin mars this life and death is the consequence. But he didn't do that. He had compassion on this centurion and healed his servant. Think about how he interacts with this poor woman later in the chapter. Jeff Thomas, a pastor in Wales, talks about remembering, uh, I think he's in his 60s now. Uh, Forgive me, Jeff, if I put you too old there, but I think he's in his 60s now. And he he talks about barely remembering uh, going to the Baptist church that he grew up in. But, But one Sunday when he was eight sticks out clearly in his mind even today, he says. It is burned forever in his memory. And it was because the man who came and sat in front of him and his mother that day. It was a father and two small children. They came in and they sat down and uh, the father never stood for anything in the service. He didn't stand for the prayers. He didn't stand and sing any hymns. In fact, shortly after the service began, he just put his head down into his hands and began to weep and weep and weep. And of course, this was not normal behavior in a church service. This is not what young Jeffrey saw every week. So, so he quietly turns to his mom and, and asks, what, what's wrong with that man? And, and the mom very discreetly tries to explain to him, just a few days ago, his wife died. And Thomas says that suddenly he was gripped with, with fear, just, just total terror and awe at the thought of these two young kids, kids his age, and no mother at home. No mother to, to care for them. No, no, no mother to cook for them. No, no, no mother to instruct them and to love them and to give them hugs. And he just sat totally gripped looking at this man weep and weep and weep. He says it was a scene of abject misery. And so it must have been for this group in name. For Luke says this woman was already a widow. I mean, she's done all of this once before. She's followed the, the funeral procession out of town once before as her, the body of, the, of her lifeless husband was stretched out on that. But then she still had a son to comfort her. Now she's walking again out of the town. And her only son is laid out in death before her and she's got no one. Yes, she has friends, surely, maybe extended family, but Luke makes a point of telling us that she's a widow And this is her only son. Why? Because that means she has no one to care for her anymore. In the first century, particularly among the Jewish community, you needed a man to take care of you. You needed a man to provide for you so that you could survive. Where is she going to live? What is she going to eat? Who will take care of her and support her? How is she going to live? Essentially, 
as she is walking from this funeral of her son, she might as well be walking from her own funeral because her life is over. Jesus, however, is there. And he sees her. And it says that he is moved with compassion for her. And you have to wonder, why her? Because he does, again, he doesn't do this with everybody, does he? But perhaps, perhaps he knows that one day his mother is going to look very similar. As her husband has died, and now the son of promise is also going to die in front of her. Nevertheless, the compassion that he has for her doesn't immediately seem obvious as he walks up to the woman and says, Do not weep. If there was ever a time to weep, wouldn't this be it? Your, your only son has died. You're at his funeral. It seems like a callous thing to say. And I imagine she probably stopped just out of shock that he would say this to her. And yet then she probably saw something else in his eyes. She probably saw that compassion that he felt. Perhaps he even had tears in his eyes. Maybe a kindness that was there. He turns to the pallbearers and he tells them to stop as he puts his hands on the beer. And you understand this would have been unthinkable for any first century Jew. I mean, I, I don't know if you know what a beer is, but basically it's just, other than something that sounds similar that you drink, that's not this. Uh, it's basically a wood plank. The body would be wrapped, it would have already been embalmed, and they would be carrying it out to where it was going to be buried. So by Jesus reaching down and touching, he's not just putting his hands on that plank of wood. He is coming into contact with a dead body, which was forbidden by God in the law of Moses. It would have made him ritually unclean. But Jesus is not worried about that because he knows he's not going to be made unclean. In fact, he's going to make this young man clean, even whole. Now stop and consider who this woman is talking to. Yes, it's Jesus, but who is Jesus? Again, st- step out of the, the historical context for a minute. Fa- fa- fast forward 20, 20 or 30 years to, to what we have recorded from us as the apostles think through and apply the Old Testament scriptures and remember all that Jesus has said to them about himself. Who is standing before her? Jesus' best earthly friend John says that he is the eternal word who was with God and was God. He was God who became flesh and dwelt among us, showing us the glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul, the apostle, born out of time, saved from a life of empty zealotry for God, now knowing the one true God, says that Jesus is the image of that invisible God. And that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created for him and through him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, for in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Standing before this woman is the same God who imagined, suddenly took a template from something else, he imagined, he made, and is continuing to sustain things like stars and constellations and entire galaxies, sharks, whales, and oceans, diamonds, dinosaurs, and the atom itself. This is the same God who is standing before this lone woman, and he is having compassion on her. How amazing is that? So many times we, when we consider the immensity of God and His glory, we may feel as if God is far off. He's unconcerned for us and our daily lives, but that is not what Jesus shows us. Some religions have that kind of God. They worship a lesser God who was, was not bothered to relate with a single person, let alone all of humanity. 
But what does Jesus say? Jesus says that not even the, the lowliest of birds, not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his father's will. And as people made in God's image, each one of us is of far more value than even many sparrows. The truth is that God sees your every need. He knows your every desire. He's even aware of your every sin. And yet, he has compassion on us. He is not a far-off, disinterested deity. He says, I am the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. I am the heavenly father who loves his children. Why should you look to Jesus in faith? Why should you trust him? Because he is compassionate towards his people in need. More than that, number four, Jesus heals by grace. Jesus heals by grace. Some, in fact many, will look at the story and think it was in fact the centurion's faith that caused Jesus to heal his servant. Uh, one sermon was even entitled, uh, entitled uh, True Faith Rewarded that I read. And of course there are some so-called preachers and teachers who will, who will jump on that. And they create an elaborate system of theology based on God answering prayer and granting physical blessings based on our faith. They would say that God owes it to us, or at the very least is more inclined to give us what we want, to heal us, to make our lives comfortable, if we have strong faith in Him. But the passage actually points in the opposite direction from that. Notice first that the evidence of the man's faith comes after Jesus was already heading towards his house. It's the thing that that Jesus is stopped and amazed. He's not amazed by the request. Did you get that? He's not amazed by the request at all. It doesn't phase him. It's a Gentile asking for somebody to be healed. And maybe Jesus is thinking, "How, how did he hear about me? How does he know to ask? But he's on his way. And it's when the servants come back and they say, look... He says, he says he's not worthy to have you enter his house and you don't even need to. Just say the word and will be healed. That's when Jesus stops dead in his tracks. And in fact, only twice in the New Testament. Well, first, at the unbelief of his own hometown. And secondly, possibly at the belief of this centurion that Jesus is said to be amazed, astonished at what he sees. He says, there, I mean, think about, think about the disciples, who are, think about the apostles that are following him. And Jesus just, just rebukes them implicitly by saying, not even in Israel do I find such faith. You guys have committed your life to me and you don't trust me this much. Here's this Gentile who says, you don't even have to show up. Just say the word and the illness will be gone. The amazement of faith comes after Jesus. I mean, what's Jesus going to do? Walk to the house and say, nah, can't help him. He's going to heal the guy. And what about the second story? Nobody asks him for anything. I'm not even sure that the widow is aware that he's there or who he is. He's the one that sees her. He's the one that identifies the need. He is the one that comes seeking her out and her son to offer healing. The reality is Jesus didn't have to heal these people. Jesus did not owe it to these people. And it did not depend on their faith or on their works. Ultimately, the healing took place because Jesus was willing and powerful to heal. Simply put, they were healed by the grace of God. And that stands in an amazing contrast to so many of the man-made religions in this world. The one that comes to mind immediately is Scientology because it's been in the news uh, again lately. Do you know anything about this group? Do you know why it's so popular in Hollywood and among uh, professional people? It's because it feeds on money. You know, we, we take up an offering, but that offering is, is not inherently for us. 
It's so that ministry can be done. So we don't charge you to come and sit and hear a sermon. We don't charge you to be a part of a Bible study or to, for us, for the elders to pray for you or, or, or for us to counsel you. Uh, we don't, we don't charge for those things. And in fact, the money that is given is, is given. It's an offering, right? It's not, it's not a, it's not a membership due, which is owed. That's, that's not the same for Scientology. For, for all of their classes, for all of their quasi-religious scientific progress they offer for you personally, the so-called spirituality of becoming clear in your emotional life and in your thought life to the point eventually that you'll be able to display X-Men-like powers in this world, like moving things with your mind and so many other things. They promise this on the upper levels. You have to pay all along the way. And so for you to, for you to be with OT9 ready, which is like the, the you know, the, the place where you're ready to meet the, the alien people who seeded the earth and produced humanity. This is all in their teaching. You have to pay, conservatively speaking, to go through all the classes, to take all the courses, to become a, a, a mutant superhero, upwards of $380,000. In other words, spiritual help comes at a price. That's the message of Scientology. That's not the message of Jesus. That's not the message of Jesus. The help that he provides, you can't pay for. You can't afford. Not even Donald Trump can write a check for it. Because what he brings is help that makes you right with God. Here he he heals freely. He heals graciously. But these physical healings are meant to point to something else. Something greater. A spiritual healing. I know some of us think, what can be greater than physical healing? Because we're obsessed with getting rid of pain and getting rid of illness in our culture. But consider the servant and the son were healed. They lived, but they're going to die again another day. Jesus is not resurrecting them from the dead to live forever. They're going to one day, just like Lazarus, they're going to either get old or get sick again, and they're going to die and they're going to stay dead. More than that... The Bible is clear that God often uses pain and suffering to do his greatest work in us. Some of you may have friends that are sick and dying. You may be praying earnestly for God to heal them. That's not wrong to pray. But I will make this statement. It is wrong if that's all that you pray. It's sinful if you only pray for God to heal them. Because from Job to the psalmist to Jesus to Paul, we see that God uses suffering and illness and pain and even death to do a spiritual work within the hearts of his people. A work that is not done in any other way. We may not like it, it may feel terrible, but God can use it to strip away our pride and our misplaced priorities, and our prejudices, and cultivate a heart for Him like nothing else. And that's the kind of inward spiritual renewal that God is most, God is most concerned about for us. That is the spiritual healing that is driving what He does to ultimately redeem us and to heal our sin-sick souls through faith in Christ. It's that healing that also comes by grace. It's not what we do. It's not what we've earned. It is something that God freely gives to us as a gift, bringing us, just like he did that, that son laid on the bier, bringing us back to spiritual life. The Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses. And in Colossians 2, God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses when we put our faith in him. 
This is the gracious salvation that Jesus is most concerned about. The healing of souls that is the priority for him. It's a healing that makes us right with God. And again, it's not anything that we earn or do. It's what God has done for us. Why should you trust Jesus? Why is he worthy of your faith? Because Jesus hears our prayers. He reigns with authority. He sees with compassion. He heals by grace. And finally, he saves without distinction. He saves without distinction. Who can receive the salvation offered by Jesus? Who can put their faith in him? Short answer is anyone can. Anyone can be saved. So stop and think about all the different people that we see in this passage that, that Jesus is showing compassion to, that Jesus is offering grace to in these verses. Think about the widow who has lost her beloved son. Think about the centurion who is about to lose his faithful servant. Completely different backgrounds. Poor, Jewish, lonely woman, mildly well-off, Rome paid their soldiers well, Gentile warrior. I mean, they're not, they're not getting together at dinner parties. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they come from pretty different worlds. And yet Jesus shows the same kind of compassion and love and grace. Whether you're Jewish or Gentile, rich or poor, strong and weak, Jesus loves them all in this passage and he still loves them all today. He loves you today. Jesus came as a human being to identify with all humanity so that all kinds of people might be saved by his work. Even here, think about the ways that that he identifies with the people pictured in this passage that he might bring salvation to them. Think of the servant. This man was loyal to the centurion, preparing his meals, keeping his armament ready, sending and receiving correspondence, in general doing whatever his master asked of him. How much more Jesus. He is the good and the better servant who is beloved by the Father whom he serves loyally and faithfully. He says this over and over again in the Gospels. He has come to do the will of the Father who sent him. And what does the Father say? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Why did he faithfully serve the Father? To achieve salvation for sinners. Think about the centurion. Here is a man of war who commands men, leading them in peacekeeping as well as battle. He's willing to fight to the death for the sake of the empire that he serves. How much more Jesus He is the good and better centurion who single-handedly goes into battle on behalf of his people, winning the war that they can never win. By his atoning death, he not only conquers sin and death, satisfying God's wrath against it for his people, but he puts their enemies to open shame that they might be free from every bondage and enslavement to spiritual forces. Finally, think of the son. This man who was taken away while young because of some injury or illness and brought grief to his mother. Like all people, he experienced death because of sin's effects in this world. How much more Jesus? He is the good and better son who dies willingly because of sin, bearing a curse that doesn't belong to him but to us. And then even as he dies an agonizing, dishonorable death on a cross, bringing pain and grief to his own mother Mary, his heavenly father gives life back to him and raises him from the dead, not to die again like the widow's son, but to never die again, to come back to life and rule and reign over all things now and for eternity. Jesus does all of this in fulfillment of the plan and purposes of God to bring salvation to all kinds of people. No one can look at Jesus today and say, that's not my Savior. I don't speak the right language. I don't come from the right people. I don't live in the right country. God says, none of that matters. 
Your ethnicity, ethnicity doesn't matter. Your past doesn't matter. Your sins don't matter. He has done everything necessary to bring every sinner to God. The only thing that keeps us from him is the hardness of our own heart. So black, white, brown, American, Hispanic, European, Asian, African, those who lie, lust, murder, disobey their parents, have greed, cheat at work, worship themselves, you name it. If they will humble themselves and come to them, he will receive them and offer forgiveness and life. He will change their hearts and bring spiritual healing. Jesus is a global savior who gladly receives all who come to him in faith. At the end of the passage, Luke says that fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, God has visited his people. When we understand what Jesus has done for us, we should have the same response today. We should stand back in fearful awe of God and worship him because he has gone to such lengths to save sinners like us. More than that, we should put our faith in Jesus, believing that through him, God has visited his people. Father, that is the the great mystery of all of life. There is nothing greater that you would send your son to be a savior for us. That you, the God who has created all things, who sustains all things with the power of your word, that you would look on us with mercy and compassion in your eyes. That you would feel tenderness towards us. That you would be patient with us and and bring us to yourself and, and heal us from our sin and change us into your very likeness. Oh God, what... What an amazing Savior you are. You have done all this through your Son. God, may He be lifted up in our minds and our hearts. May we put our faith in Him. Perhaps for the first time today, but God, for most of us it will be for the hundredth time, for the thousandth time. God, for the millionth time, may we look to Christ in faith, trusting that He is the perfect Savior that makes us right with you. He is the perfect Savior who will not only cleanse us from sin, who will change our hearts and who will sustain us through all adversity in this life. God, we ask all these things in his name. Amen.